Hey, and welcome to the show today. You're listening to SinSensor.com, Feel Your Heart podcast. And we have another really great show for you today. This podcast is made by SinSensor.com, the leading relationship institute for relationship skills and courses based on science made practical. To get the one-hour free webinar that will give you the key skills to get a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, just go to SinSensor.com and sign up. The link is in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and leave a review. It really helps me keep the positive energy going to make more podcasts. Today we got Todd on the show and we're going to be talking about self-compassion and relationships. And obviously there's a lot of people sitting out there, Todd, that don't really know who you are. So could you maybe give um, them just a little introduction about your background? Sure. Well, again, my name is Todd Krieger and I have been working in the field of uh, mostly couples, uh, couples work for like over 30 years. And I have, uh, I, I teach at USC, a school of social work, which is my alma mater from way back. I, I used to go there. But my main job is helping in couples uh, heal from crises like infidelity, rekindle passion to make them feel alive. Um, I'm the author of a book called The Long Hot Marriage. And it's been published not only in this country, but actually in China. So I'm kind of passionate about helping couples have passion. And, uh, and I'm also, I, I'm a certified EMDR therapist, which means uh, EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, which is a phenomenal uh, approach that helps people heal from trauma. Uh, I found that sometimes I was working with someone with low sexual desire, and it was because they were molested. I wasn't helping them the way I wanted to. So I, I learned this, this amazing approach that now has freed me up to free them up to, to regain their sexual self. So a lot of, and I'm, I use it for many other things too. So I'm still growing, even though I've been doing this for over 30 years. It's, it's, it's an amazing field. Love what I do. Been yeah. married 35, going on 36 years myself. So I try to walk my talk, not always perfect. <laughs> So that's a lot about me in a nutshell. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And actually, we should sure. probably do a separate podcast on the EMDR because it's something that's really, really interesting. And I've actually started reading up on it myself. Um, and yeah. as you said, had some really impactful and interesting result with trauma work that otherwise are very difficult to access. Um, so, so maybe that's a, a, a whole separate yeah. podcast for us yeah. to to look into that. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And the good news is that. Uh, even though I brought this up several years back and people were saying, no, 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 I would say, you know, we could do this virtually. Now that COVID-19 had hit the, hit the world, believe me, all these people that were mad at me for even bringing it up, we're all doing it and we're all being successful and there's ways to do this you know, virtually as well as face-to-face. So, uh-huh. yeah, we'll, definitely I'll be happy to There we go. To that, that's another episode. I think what I really want to talk to you a bit about today, or one of the topics, is, as you mentioned, self-compassion. Um, right. and I really, yeah, I would love to hear a bit about, first of all, I guess, why is self-compassion important in a relationship and also how does it actually impact the dynamic, whether, whether the two partners, they have self-compassion? Yeah. So, you know, this is definitely something that I've learned through the years is that a lot of times couples would come to me and you would see poor listening. You would see a lot of bickering or worse domestic violence even, you would you see, uh, you know, abuse. So it could be from, you know, just these minor bickerings to something worse. But in all these cases, what I've learned about people 
is that the way I treat you has everything to do with the way I treat myself. The way I perceive you has everything to do with the way I perceive myself. I project onto you. It's as if you really don't exist separate from me. How I think of you is how I see you and how I treat you. And uh, when I wrote my book back in 2008, in The Long Hot Marriage, way back then, I even said, um, early in my book, there's a chapter called Beware of Your Perceptions of Your Partner. Because if I see my partner as an enemy, I will treat you like an enemy. But when I went deeper into it, I've learned that we have this critical self, this critical voice. And so, for example, personally, when I came from a family where my parents were wonderful, wonderful people, however, mom would put down dad a lot. And then eventually I would tell my mom to, I would fight his battles. <laughs> anyway, what I've found when I would uh, go to, when my wife had a complaint about me or she was mad at me about something, I reacted very childlike, very defensively, didn't listen. And I learned in my own mind, as well as the mind of my clients, that she was resonating with a part of me that wasn't kind to me. It was a part of me that thought I had to be perfect. And so when she would give a complaint, there would be a voice inside of my head that would say, see, you're not good enough. And that was nothing, there was no sign of self-compassion. There was a lot of self, uh, self-criticalness. And for some people, even self-loathing. So when, when, I, when that hit, how I would react to that was to get angry back. Poor listening. And so I realized that one of the first steps in becoming a good listener, to allow my partner to have whatever experience she had, even anger towards me, I needed to practice being kind towards myself. And when, when people in my field teach communication skills, they kind of skip that. They, you know, You could talk about all kinds of techniques. But if you are being hard on yourself and you haven't, you don't learn how to soothe yourself, you're not going to be able to listen to your partner or, or make room for them when they say anything that triggers you. Mm, interesting. So it's kind of like a, a strategy for self-regulation as well to regulate our own nervous system so we don't get triggered too and, and I guess buy into that cycle. Is that correctly understood? Exactly. I mean, we cannot... It's something I say, and I love that you brought up this whole thing about emotional regulation. Because personally, I think that's the, that's the backbone of everything that I do is try to help people self-regulate. Because if I can't self-regulate, how am I going to regulate you? The the couple that thrives is a couple that learns how to regulate each other, both down and up. Down meaning from stressed to more relaxed, and up from being maybe neutral to more alive. And I always say, it's my job to regulate my wife. In other words, if she is stressed about something, it is my job not just to provide income or whatever. It's my job to regulate her down if she's stressed. So I have to learn how to listen to her. Well, if I don't regulate me, then how am I ever going to regulate her? And I also want to regulate her up. In other words, so if she's neutral, maybe I can go to her and say, hey, honey, Let's go on a hike. Oh, you want to dance? Uh, you know, that it's my job to regulate up. Well, how can I do that if I don't make myself alive and regulate me up? So it is always important to regulate ourselves so that we're in a position to regulate our partner. And it's my partner's job to regulate herself too. 
but it's both. It's regulate me, regulate you. I have to regulate me so that I could help regulate you. I really like that point a lot, Todd. Also, I forgot the name of the author. There's this neuroscientist, and I read a book about how to help regular teach your children social and emotional learning. And part of what she, her main point in the book actually was that as a parent, the first thing we have to do is learn how to regulate ourselves before we deal with our child. Because if we are not regulated, oh. then anything we do will not work. And I guess a relationship is kind of a an interaction between two nervous systems, if we can say it in that way. Well, that's, um, no, that's absolutely that's absolutely right. Uh, it's there's a neurobiological. You know, like I, I always think that I, I learned to take a psycho neurobiological approach, meaning that, you know, we have to realize the biology. And as as a professor uh, at a graduate school, I, I have, you know, been I've had the opportunity to teach a little bit about neurobiology. Not I'm, not that I'm, I know a lot of detail, but I know enough to be dangerous, and and I've learned or to be helpful maybe. And uh, I, it's absolutely the way you say it. We are two nervous systems regulating each other and there's different depending on um, what I trigger in you there might be different clusters of neurons that get triggered that the part of you that maybe when you were five and somebody my dad told you you weren't good enough that when I just have a little complaint about you 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 act like it's the end of the world and so we have to tune in to what's going on with ourselves and develop the ability to have uh, self-compassion even when and even especially when we're triggered so it is very important to to see it as my I, there's two nervous systems here that are trying to regulate each other and if we're, if we're dysregulated how am i ever going to regulate you yeah I, i like that and also what you said before i like that point that it's about regulating each other both ways so if our nervous system is is triggered and on too high alert we need to help you know regulate each other down and if we are too low <laughs> then we somehow have to sometimes help each other regulate up like you said let's go on a hike so it's being aware constantly of that baseline of the nervous system of the other party and then help each other regulate yes i, I exactly. like that so to exactly. to get practical todd if somebody is sitting out there and say yeah i like this sound of self-compassion they might think the next step is yeah but then how do i do this how do i start cultivating self-compassion right. have you some ideas that people can then use to start doing this yes yes and i'll do a shout out to um the center for mindful self-compassion which i'm sure has gone international by now the center for msc or mindful self-compassion uh, you could just anyone can just google that my wife and i both took an eight-week course in this and i think even though I knew about this whole thing about, I've, I've talked about this for decades about being kind to ourselves, regulating ourselves. When we took that class, it was so wonderful. It provided us with such specifics that now my clients benefit. I've, I've, I've given talks about it. Um, I've helped even family law attorneys learn how to develop mindful self-compassion so that they can um, be better with their couples that are divorcing that in the stressful situations. So, you know, one of the basic techniques for mindful self-compassion is I have to start out with just tune in, just slow down. We are, we, we are too quick a lot of times with our busyness and our screens that we're in. You know, I know that for some people life slowed down during the pandemic, but still, even now, people need to learn to slow down and stop and take and tune in. 
Like, where am I at? Am I being hard on myself? Is my body tense? So the first thing is to stop and to put a value on stopping and slowing down and, and checking in with yourself because that's number one. We need to check in and notice where am I tense? How am I, am I being tough on myself? So think, checking in with your body, checking in with your self-talk and your self-conversations and that awareness is the first step. Now, and, and once you're aware, there are many things we could do for self-compassion. One is, first of all, to recognize that we all need it and to create an intention to learn how to be kind to ourselves and compassionate to ourselves, that that becomes a goal. So what I tell people is you now have two goals with everything you do. I tell my graduate students this. I go, when you're writing the paper, you, you write, your goal isn't to just write a good paper. Your goal is to write a good paper and be kind to yourself throughout the process of doing it. You know, So now you have two goals. So it's like going through life with two goals, not just one. And how do I do it? Well, one is, it might sound a little corny, but it's true, is affectionate touch towards ourselves. Learning to put your hand, for example, over your heart and feel the gentle pressure and heat of your hand over your heart. Again, with the intention of being kind to yourself, you know, so you're not just mechanically doing it, you're doing it with a, with a kind of leaning in towards yourself as if you would be leaning in towards a child who's sad, you know, you're not just you know, you're leaning in with a sense of kindness and with a sense of compassion to a child that's, especially if it's your child who's sad or upset, you're doing that with your body, putting your hand over your heart, or you could put your hand, um, over your face, or even two hands, like cupping your, your cheeks of your face. It might seem a little corny, but you do that. And you, you, you just like you would on a child that might be having a tough time, you could stroke your arms. So this is just one, and I'll give you more, but it's just a soothing touch because what I've learned is the most important thing we could do with other people when they're in pain is to make contact with them, to let them know, I'm here for you. And in a way, we need to do that with ourselves, especially if we came from families where sometimes many people grew up in families where they were emotionally in pain and kind of left to themselves. And so we need to start building that in towards ourselves. And I joked on the last week of this class that I said, you know, they were asking for feedback. And I said, well, I got to tell you, I've never touched myself so much in non-genital places like I have during this class. But... Um, it's it's something that I, I I do that. I do that a lot just to make sure and this is a way of regulating and regulating down and softening. I really like that a lot. And also I guess it's what a what a parent would naturally do if their child is distressed, right? Then we give them a hug or we embrace them when they come running. Yeah. So that like you yeah. said, there's something inheriting very natural and comforting about doing that. And I really like that because when we first mentioned self-compassion, I didn't actually think about it in this somatic way that you describe now. I more thought about it as a cognitive process where, you know, you tell ah. yourself, Oh yeah, I'm good enough, blah, blah, blah. So I really like right. that you that you bring in then somatic approach because again often that's a, a even more powerful way to calm down the nervous system so i really like that yeah no i definitely will talk about some cognitive ways but i always want to start with with that with the body because you're right i mean the body is 
it's it's where our feelings are. It's where our stress is. It's where our self-criticalness registers. So if we could tune in and intervene at the body level, you know, that is, that's the way to do that, you know. And if we could do that, and along with that, take some slow, deep breaths, slowing down our breathing as we touch, that's amazing. And we could even tune in as we tune in and are aware of, wow, you know, I'm feeling tightness in my belly. You might put your, your hand over your belly and, and give that gentle warmth to your belly. So, you know, working with the body is so crucial to help shift to self-compassion. Yeah, I really like that. Uh, you mentioned also yeah. Todd, that you maybe had some cognitive ideas for what people could do um, as well. Yeah, well, the words, uh, you know, the self-talk is very important. And so we, we could do, it's a lot of this self-compassion you know, and you probably know this too, sometimes the best things we could do are the simplest things. You know, putting your hand over your heart or your belly or stroking your hands or arms, there's nothing complicated about it. Also, just saying words that begin with may I is it really, it's may I be kind to myself right now. I'm going through some painful thing right now. May I be kind to myself right now. May I soften the, my, my stomach muscles and just rest them. Sort of like combining the, the cognitive and the somatic. But may I have, may I be peaceful right now? May I allow myself to feel worthy right now? And sometimes I'll say, how would I feel if I felt worthy right now? For some people, there's such a, a habit of feeling unworthy, that I'll say to them, just um, ask yourself, if I could just feel worthy for 20 seconds, in 20 seconds I could beat up myself again, but for 20 seconds, just imagining how I would be if I was good enough, how would that feel? Because for some people, they could do it like for 20 seconds because there's this other part of them that goes, no, I don't believe it, I'm not good enough. But for 20 seconds, eh, I could suspend that belief how would I feel if I felt worthy? And then I go, okay, 20 seconds are up. Now renew it. So what we're really trying to do is, and this is my own, this I did not get from that class, but you know, it's sort of like, how do we begin a new habit? Because emotions and tension and self-criticalness is a habit. And when we're practicing self-compassion, we're creating a new habit. How would I feel if I felt worthy? How would it feel to forgive myself for this thing I did? You know, I've had people come in. I do a lot of work with people healing from infidelity. And I have both the person who betrayed and the person who did the betrayal beating themselves up. The person who did the betrayal feels terrible about what they did. The person who betrayed feels like terrible, like what's wrong with me? What, how, maybe it's me. Maybe I'm not good enough. And, you know, even just practicing you know, these these simple techniques of self-compassion. And, you know, how would I feel if I forgave myself for being human? How would I feel? And, you know, I'm working with one man, for example, working on self-compassion because I realized that underneath his cheating, and it was pretty consistent, there was a 
critical voice. He inherited from his dad. He internalized it. And his way of dealing with his criticalness when he didn't get the business deal, when he didn't meet up with his own expectations, was to just kind of regulate by going into some kind of sexual trance and, and acting out sexually uh, out online, in person. And, you know, his wife wants me to hang him, basically, metaphorically, not really. But, you know, she thinks his, the thing is to, be, to punish him. And I'm explaining to him, it depends what your goal is. If your goal is to punish him, then, yeah, we could punish him. But if the goal is to change that behavior so that you could one day feel safe and trust him again if you want to be in this relationship, then my job is to help him actually forgive himself. Self-forgiveness and self-compassion change it decreases the chances of that habit repeating. And self-compassion is crucial in those cases. And I told her, you need to be kind to yourself. Don't beat yourself up for choosing at the moment at least to stay in the relationship so that you don't have to beat you up or beat him up psychologically because you've chosen to be in. And she started to cry and go, yeah, I've been so hard on myself. Like, why should I should I stay? Mom, my, my friend's saying, leave the jerk, and I'm not ready to leave. It's like, be kind to yourself. You'll make that decision, but do it with kindness. So we we need to cognitively start to challenge these ideas that I'm supposed to be different than I am. Just may I be kind to myself while I'm in this confusion? May I soften my muscles while I'm in this state of limbo and in between and not sure what I should do. So there's so many applications to it in, in, in everything uh, that we go through. And, you know, as you know, as you could tell, I mean, I'm glad you picked this topic. I gave you a few choices because self-compassion is so key to healing psychologically and even physically. Yeah, you know what pops into mind when you speak about this, Todd? Because I can, Todd, I can really feel actually the profound impact of this topic far more than I imagined before we started this discussion. Because also, it made me think about how to create a secure attachment if we don't necessarily have that. You know, if some people are anxious, some people avoid, and and I really feel what you're saying is part of start recreating a more secure attachment in ourselves because we can only do that when we start having compassion towards ourselves and give ourselves that compassion that maybe we weren't given um you know when we were children so there's something really beautiful in this and also I really like what you said about you know to change the behavior we actually need to feel that compassion for ourselves um and and that just resonates so much and also you know I watched Brené Brown's documentary recently mm -hmm. and she also talked mm -hmm. about shame doesn't work to change habits so shaming people doesn't make them do less of the bad stuff actually it makes no. them do more um absolutely which is why exactly it's so spot on what you're saying that actually even if we've done something that maybe we feel guilty about shame is not the way self-compassion is and then we are more likely to change so it was just such a beautiful point that you made and i really want to emphasize that and i think you also well, mentioned yeah go ahead todd no, I say what you said was beautiful too. It was beautifully said, you know. And um, I was just going to tell you a quick story, and then please ask you a question. But the, I had many years ago this man who came to see me for about two months. We're into the therapy. He at the about five minutes ago in the session, he looks at me and his face gets really red, and he goes, "I have to tell you something, but 
I'm so embarrassed. I, I can't believe I have to tell you this, but I have to tell you this. Okay, what, what? Well, and he told me how he would go to these places that weren't far from my office, and he would, he would, do, he would act that sexually. Uh, he, it was one of those places where, I, I don't even remember, it's been so long, but he would look through a peephole and watch a person, and I don't know if it was a movie or real, that's how long ago, it's very vague for me, but uh, he would see some kind of a domination. And I said, well, who was, who was the one dominating, the male or the female? He said, the male. And he came from a family where his mom rejected him a lot, and other women in his past rejected him a lot, and he said, I, I just can't believe it. I said, well, how often do you do this? He goes, so he, and he was so embarrassed. And he looks at me and he shuts his eyes and he goes, about twice a week. And even the shutting his eyes, was, he, could, he couldn't even look at me. He was so ashamed. And I said to him, this just came to me. I said, look, I know it's near the end of our session, but I'm just going to give you some homework. And he goes, what? I said, I want you to go four times this week, and not, to, not just twice. I want you to go four times. And he, he looked at me. He goes, What? I said, I'm just telling you, your therapist is telling you, go four times this week and then just let me know how it went for you. And so he comes back the next week and he goes, I said, how was it? He goes, well, I don't know. I, he said, I went the first time and I just didn't have any, I lost all desire and it just wasn't very fun and I couldn't get into it. So I just went home and that was it. I haven't gone more than, more. I haven't gone. And so it, it was one of those times where this is a man who was angry, probably at his mom and at his women, and but he would do this behavior, and then his shame, it was almost like it became a cycle of shame and punishing himself and shame and punishing He would do this thing, and then he would feel more shame. And so when I gave kind of sanctioned him doing it, but even more so, it changed it. He couldn't get into it. It, it was such a good example of how his self-criticalness his self-criticalness fueled the habit, the, bad, the negative habit, the habit he wanted to change. And when I gave him some compassion, it kind of evoked his self-compassion a little bit maybe or kindness or at least took some of the criticalness off and he lost his desire. Anyway, I just, that story just came to me. Yeah, and I really like that story actually. You know, I had a few times where women have said to me that they don't really like that their husband or partner watch so much pornography and the interesting thing is when you then ask them how they deal with that, it's often that they try to shame their partner. And just like you said, you know, my point is that that will definitely not help them stop doing that behavior. No. And again, we no. can't obviously make other people do anything. That's the first thing we have to realize. Um, yes. But but if you want to, you know, help them in some way, if maybe they feel they have an addiction and they actually want to change it, then shaming them is probably the worst thing you can do. And I just think your story again illustrate that in such a beautiful way. Um, so thank you for sharing that, Todd. Sure. And sure. I think one thing you mentioned earlier when we just started speaking was you said that self-compassion have a lot to do with good listening. Um, but I think oh, yeah. for most people out there, they might think, what does he mean? And so did I. So maybe you can clarify a bit more what you meant sure. by that. Sure. Uh, yeah, so uh, this is one where I could speak uh, on behalf of thousands of couples I've helped, but I could also speak in terms of myself in my marriage that I find self-compassion, and uh, which goes a lot along with self-acceptance of being human, uh, is crucial to listening. That you know, so again, in a in a relationship, especially an intimate relationship, when a partner is Annoyed. If my wife is annoyed with me, um, 
what I can, what I do, it's sort of like, you know, if you have a pitchfork, all these pitchforks in the room and you, the old thing, if you hit a pitchfork and have a certain frequency and all the pitchforks of that same frequency start to vibrate too. It's like, if there's a part of me and there is in all of us that could have insecurity or being self-critical, being hard on ourselves, if my wife has a moment of disappointment with me, the part of me that's disappointed with me starts to vibrate, just like those tuning forks. And so the more it vibrates and the more I'm unaware of it, I will not listen to her. I will, I will defend against it. You know, we have a, a brain, we have the amygdala, which is the part of the brain that reacts to threat. And at that moment, I'm feeling threatened because my wife is stimulating, not, not that she's doing it on purpose. She's just telling me something she's experiencing. But she's stimulating this part of me that feels not good enough, let's say. And so I will react with defensiveness. Um, the way I might regulate myself is to tell her to be quiet or just get over it. Or, you know, don't make such a big deal out of it. Or maybe I'll just walk away. You know, there's lots of ways we could do that. Or for some people, not me, but other people, they'll go take a drink of alcohol. They'll do anything to regulate but what they're not doing is staying emotionally attentive and present to their partner's experience. What I found with me is, and I even look, I even talk about it this way. When my wife is disappointed with me, that's a good thing <laughs> because it's an opportunity for me to practice self-compassion. So it's like, okay, I messed up. Ah, I messed up. I'm human. Soften. May I be kind to myself. Now I'm, now I'm ready to listen to her. So I say, okay. So, you know, I forgot, I forgot to do that for you. And you asked and it was important. I could understand why you'd be angry. Tell me more, honey. Tell me more about that. <laughs> What's going on? I could be there with her because she's not a threat. And she's not a threat because I'm not beating myself up because I'm self-compassionate. And I've taken myself off that metaphorical ledge like it's such a big life and death thing. You know, when you feel like your survival's on the line, all you're trying to do is survive. And in, in, with us in this uh, time, we're not cavemen anymore. Psychologically, we start to feel like we're going to die if our partner says, is disappointed with us. It's none of it's true. But we feel that way. And when I'm in survival mode, I am not going to listen to you. One way, and probably the most effective way to get out of survival mode is to do something in the moment of self-compassion. Put my hand over my heart, touch my face, say, hey, I'll be kind to myself. Or, may I forgive myself for not being perfect? Or, may I just know that I'm okay even if she's disappointed at this very moment? And it takes a second to just intervene. It's a new habit we're creating. And now I'm there. And now I have the emotional presence because my life isn't on the line. It wasn't before. But now I'm experiencing that it's not on the line. Now I'm present. Now I could tune in. And now I could be interested and curious about what's going on with her. I love that. So it's really, again, back to this self-regulation. And also it sounds like almost because obviously when they say something that potentially can trigger us, we obviously interpreted that. And, and as you say, we interpret that through our critical inner voice. We actually enhance that stress response, meaning that we shut down. But if we instead can do the opposite, that we can meet ourselves with self-compassion, then what they're saying might not necessarily trigger our stress response and we can therefore listen right. And acknowledge, and, and yeah, it makes so much sense. It's really a beautiful 
way to illustrate it and i love that like i said i've never thought about self-compassion in that way but i can actually feel it even somatically as you are explaining this yeah, yeah. how this would yeah. work um and we it can just all relate to this right it makes, makes so much sense like i said i can I actually mean, sense it even in, in circumstances when i've been in relationship and i sat there and i felt i was criticized and you're right of course we start shutting down because we feel that it's a potential threat and i can sense as i reimagine those scenarios and think about being kind to myself and think yeah but you know like you said i'm human of course i mess up sometimes suddenly it's much easier to hear what it was she said to me in those conversations yeah. so yeah it's quite quite incredible i think that's really and 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 when we do this i mean i've i've i said this yesterday to a, a couple that i was working with who flare up and get really angry real quickly which my wife and i that's the way we would be we're kind of we're both pretty extroverted so you know so but what's amazing is if she's angry at me and then i immediately do some kind of self-compassionate intervention through touch through may i be kind to myself through reminding myself it's okay that's not the end of the world i'm still wonderful to i'm, I'm still a pretty good guy you know whatever i have to do in that moment and then i tune into her and i go this just happened within the last two days i know i've done this i said i could imagine why you'd be angry at me that was a really silly thing i did i can't believe it she goes yeah and i went well what else and she goes well is your step blah 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 and i go <laughs> i want to get it and then she looked at me and she held my hand and we walked out and we, we went to do a hike but we walked out and it's like she was she was totally good with me it's like you know the these the things that couples fight about it, we just we just imagine the worst we're we're not kind to ourselves we're not compassionate towards ourselves and we create a fight that all we have to do and I'm not saying all in the sense of we shouldn't we should be judgmental of ourselves i'm just saying that as we practice self compassion it changes everything and that what could have been world war 3 suddenly is the, the the pain gets dissolved and then you know, that was nice glad you were there for me and the anger just shifts into something else that's really nice it's not not emotions are you know they come and go as long as we allow it and so yes that self-compassion is is so crucial and i really like so that crucial. i like that story too todd because there's another i think interesting tool there so first you use self-compassion and then it's kind of validate your partner's experience and i think often what when people are in arguments it's because they think it's about being right and they think if i validate that means i agree but validating their experience yeah. doesn't necessarily mean that we agree we can have a different perception and, and disagree but still validate validate just means that we acknowledge you know what their experience is and that's also really i think powerful tool to help regulate the other right to say you know instead of sure. starting to counter argue just say you know i hear this is your experience of what's happening well yes and you you know you brought this up so i know you know a lot about the this whole different types of attachments and the secure attachment is one where the mom let's say the mom could be the dad too but let's say mom uh tunes into the child uh more times than not doesn't have to be perfect but more times than not tunes into the child and the child gets that experience that you, you got me, you know, you, you, you got me. So if, if my daughters who are now in their twenties, but let's say they were, well, even now, you know, but you know, it's like my daughter calls up last night, just one of the people I was with is positive for COVID-19 just happened last night. And she said, I said, Oh, Oh, how you doing? How you feeling? She says, I'm kind of nervous. <laughs> I said, I get it. I, I, I totally get it. I mean, 
I could understand why you would be. And uh, I was with her. And then after I was with her, then I said, yeah, but he's, he's 67. He's, he's asymptomatic. They, it was funny that why he even got tested. But um, uh, one of his family members did a, did a COVID-19 testing party. It was kind of a funny thing. <laughs> that was the only reason. And they all were negative, And he was positive. And he's like, I can't believe it. I just don't know. I wasn't even around anybody but my family. But she was training him. She's a personal trainer, does this virtual personal training. And so, but she was doing with him, she was live. So, um, so anyway, you know, just tuning in a mom with a baby tunes in, you don't look for agreement. You know, you don't, the baby says, the, the child says, I'm scared that there's monsters under the bed. If the mother says, don't be ridiculous, there's no monster on the bed. That's not going to do it. But if the mom tunes in first and says, Oh, you're scared. Come, let me hold you. I said, look, I don't think there's monsters in the bed. The child will be far more receptive. With couples, it's the same thing. We, we need to tune in. It's not about agreement or disagreement. It's not about giving in. It's about attunement. It's, I'm just tuning into you. You know, I'm tuning in. If you think I did something that I don't believe I did and I disagree with you, I could still be kind to myself at this moment, tune into you, you feel like I got you. And then I can still say, you know, I have to tell you, I disagree with you. I don't see what I did as incorrect at all, but I understand you do and you felt bad about it. That's a far better way to go. You know, you'll want to tune in first, then you disagree. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, I find it so interesting because it's probably a whole nother podcast to speak about this, but I just found that, you know, we live in a culture that really values independence so much. And I'm not saying it's not important to be able to be independent. It is, of course, but it values it so highly that we don't really learn the tools and understanding that actually when we relate to others, even friends, we do have to co-regulate each other because, you yes. know, we aren't just these individuals that live disconnected from other people. We are constantly impacted by each other because we are social creatures. And I think yes. we need to have much more focus on really teaching people, which you are helping with here, the awareness that we do have to co-regulate each other. And actually, we are dependent on others, no matter how independent we want to feel we are. Then we do need others right. in our life for our well-being, both physically and emotionally. Um, so, yeah, I just wanted to quickly mention that. Um, one other question, actually, I had for you was, you know, because I know you mentioned before the, the podcast, something about self-compassion and also how it related to romance. And that's something I would be really interested oh, in hearing a bit more yeah. about as well. Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, I think many people, especially men, go around with this idea that they're not romantic. I'm not romantic. I'm just not the romantic kind. I'm an engineer. I, I you know, whatever the reasons are. Uh, and what I think is, of course, for many of us in the beginning of relationships, because of the neurochemistry that happens in the beginning of relationships, we're naturally romantic. So there is, for most people, they were romantic. Some people say, I wasn't even romantic in the beginning. Uh, and that's okay, too. What, what I find is romance to me is, since we've been talking about this, is upregulation. It's regulating the other person. If I write a love poem to my wife, even if not a great poet, it up, she, she's upregulated. Now, since I use that example, I am not a prolific writer about certain things maybe, but surely not about poetry. And if I can be self-compassionate and say, you know, I'm going to be kind to myself. I don't have to do this perfectly. 
then I'm more willing to put myself out there and take a chance. Because a lot of romance is about being vulnerable in some way. It really is. To be romantic means if I'm writing a poem, I'm taking a chance a little bit. I might give her the poem. She goes, she could say, I hope she wouldn't, but uh, this wasn't a really good poem. In, in a way, you're putting yourself out there. If I'm romantic in, in the sense of I create a romantic evening for my partner, she might reject me. So uh, a lot of times people aren't romantic because they're living in their comfort zone. And I do believe to have a long, hot marriage, to have a passionate, alive marriage or a committed relationship, doesn't have to be marriage, uh, that we need to not play it so safe a lot. And we need to leave our comfort zones. And if I could practice being self-compassionate and basically say, you know what, I'm okay no matter what happens, then I'm going to take some chances. And being romantic is, like I said, taking some chances. On some level, I'm being vulnerable. On some level, I'm putting my out, myself out there for possible hurt, possible judgment, even though oftentimes what you're really going to do is thrill your partner and the partner is going to do everything like you know, writing a love poem. I don't care how bad that poem is. If you wrote a love poem with the intent of, of telling the person how much you think that person is wonderful, beautiful, or how much you love that person, usually that person will act positively. But we need to give ourselves permission to, to, to be romantic, to put ourselves out there, to take a chance. I and, love that. Uh, you, know, I love you, that. Me you mentioned Brene Brown, right? The power of vulnerability. Yeah. Romance is vulnerability, and vulnerability is courage. And with self-compassion, it allows us to have more courage. You know, I really, this is oh, a great point, Todd. I just love what you bring up here. Also, because when you say, you know, that we have to take a risk, and I think that's so true. If I look at couples, you know, if I'm out, or I haven't been much because of COVID, but normally if you go out yeah. and you look at, hear couples' conversations, then some couples you can hear played really safely, only talk about safe topics. And very yes. often, you know, I would be able to predict that their relationship is probably not that intimate. Um, and again, yes. if you then see other couples that have much more vulnerable conversations, then they tend to have a much more flourishing relationship. And you're right, we can't have that relationship if we only play it safe. So there's a really wonderful acknowledgement, like you said, in the fact that to really flourish, we have to step outside our comfort zone because that's where connection really happens when we step into that vulnerability and actually dare to not only stick to what feels safe. So I really like that point. Um, and also your example about giving a poem and how to upregulate your partner, kind of hit their actual radar. So I think that's great. And I guess we can also then maybe talk about the context of self-compassion and, and sex itself. Like, could you maybe talk yes. a bit about how that relates as well since we're yes. on this topic? <laughs> yes, yes, you know, it's great. You know, look, this is related to the whole romantic thing that I, I think, the, like I, I call myself, you know, a sex therapist. But I got to tell you, what I don't do is say, I'm not like, hey, try this position or that position. That's not, that's not my forte. You know, I, it's not about that. For me, it's about a person being willing to, to be vulnerable and to get closer and to take some chances and not do the same old sexual thing, for example, or to share something, a desire, a secret fantasy, or... To, to try a new position, but whatever the position they want to try, um, trying do, doing something different. There is, behind that, there's got to be a measure of self-kindness and self-compassion 
that I am going to be kind to myself no matter what, uh, so that I am willing to take a chance with you, so that I, because I might share a secret fantasy with you, and I don't know what your reaction that's going to be, or I might try something new with you, you may not like it. But if I'm being hard on myself, then I'm going to only stick to things that I know have worked before. I'm going to stick to things that that I know I'm good at. And, and then the other thing is performance anxiety, you know, especially with men, women too with orgasms, but more, of course, men. There, you know, one of the things I say is I'm, I'm really successful with people, with men that have erection difficulties. Uh, and, you know, we, we rule out physiological issues, which can be there. But if it's not, if it's, if they give me signs that it's just psychological, then we realize there's an inner critic working there. And so even with, especially with that, with that sexual issue, I say, what an opportunity. It's so wonderful that you have this problem. And they say, what, what are you talking about? Because I say, it's kind of letting you know that you have a, you have a habit of being hard on yourself and that you are going to be kind to yourself only if you have this kind of sexual performance. But what if you could be kind to yourself no matter what? What if you can actually tell your partner, look, you know, if I lose my erection, just little, I'll gain it, you know, whatever it is. Well, I'll lose it and gain it. We'll lose it. <gasps> really? I know. I always think I got to get it right the first time. I said, why? You know, again, be kind to yourself. Why? What? You're human. You're a human being. You know, and the only way, you know, obviously uh, having our full sexual capacity doesn't happen when we're in survival mode. When we're in survival mode, all our sexual apparatus starts to shut down because when, I, when I'm threatened, when I feel like my life is in danger, at least metaphorically, uh, there's no reason to be sexual. So be, being self-kind not only helps a person take some chances, but it helps a person stay more connected and be willing to do things that maybe even in the past didn't work for them because, you know what, it's not a threat. No matter what happens, I'm going to be kind to me, no matter what. That is so powerful when you could firmly and clearly make that decision, which it is a decision, that I'm going to be kind, compassionate to, my, to myself no matter what happens. And a lot of times when you do that, the partner gets that sense about you and the partner relaxes too. So. You know, when you were talking, Todd, there was really a light bulb that just went off in my head because it made me think I did a, a social and emotional learning program a few years ago for kids, actually, um, mm -hmm. which was based on Carol Dweck's work called Growth Mindset. And mm -hmm. I suddenly yes. realized as you were speaking that actually, even though she doesn't talk about this, but actually the key component for this is actually self-compassion. That if we learn self-compassion, then automatically we start having a growth mindset because like you said here, we're trying something new in the bedroom, suddenly you wouldn't worry that much about it because, you know, it's okay if it doesn't go right, you know, it's fine. Um, right. And with that compassion, we'll be willing to take risk and therefore that's how we start growing. So I just really had that light pole just go bling while, <laughs> while you were talking. Sure, sure, um, sure. So I got to call sure. up Kel Drake and say she needs to add that <laughs> to, her, <laughs> to her research. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> but Todd, uh, right. I wanted to yeah just ask you as well here. Um, I think I've been through the, the main questions, but a lot of people who might sit and listen to this and think this was really, really good stuff and we want to work with Todd. So how can people find you? Where can they look you up on the internet? How can I get in contact with you, et cetera? Sure. Well, the, the easiest way and the way people have been doing it is through my website, www.toddkrieger.com. I'll spell it. T-O-D-D-C-R-E-A-G-E-R 
com, And through that, you can contact me via email. You know, and, and like I said, I work virtually. So I have people all over the world, uh, usually with Zoom, even though there's WhatsApp and things like that, but usually with, with Zoom. And, uh, and so, yeah, they could contact me there. And, and the website also has a lot of good videos and articles. And it's just got a lot of information on different topics uh, such as this. Perfect. And the book as well, Todd, you've written, um, I think, two books, right? What was the name of those books if people want to look them up? Yes, one book is The Long Hot Marriage. And uh, the other one is Love, Sex and Karaoke, 52 Ways to Ignite Your Love Life. Love uh, which <laughs> It's a fun little interactive book uh, that is, is a book that has some information, but it's really more about inspiring you to do something different. Some, some weekends, it's like 52 weeks of the year. Uh, you know, it's like every weekend, you, you oh, it doesn't have to be the weekend, though, of course, but you, you do something romantic or you take a chance or you do something, with, you, you, you act compassionate towards yourself or your others or there's so many different topics. I haven't read my book, that book in a while, so I don't remember. But I, I'm going to look it, it up. I'm going to look it up yeah. afterwards and I'll, I'll encourage everybody yeah. else to do the same. But Todd, thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, and also downloadable. I just want to mention real quick, there's also a lot of downloadable products too on things like how to break free from your dysfunctional family and how to heal from infidelity and divorce-proof your marriage. So there's a lot of other things there too. I just wanted to Yeah, thank you. Go, go check out Todd's website and uh, I can put a link as well in the description below so, so you can just click that. So thank you so much, Todd, for coming on here and just sharing all your knowledge. I really appreciate it and I thought it was a fantastic podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Don't forget to subscribe to this channel and come back for our new weekly podcast. Also, leave a review to keep the positive energy going that really keeps me motivated to make more of these podcasts. If you want to learn the key skills to a safe, intimate, and passionate relationship, then head over to sensor.com and join the free one-hour webinar. The link is in the description. You'll learn the four reasons that relationships break down, the how your attachment style may fuel conflict with your partner and how to break that cycle, why people cheat and the one tip that can prevent it, the simple three-step formula to lasting love. So thank you for joining us today and I look forward to seeing you next week for another podcast. <laughs>